Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 20, and we'll be starting in verse 9 here momentarily. We are in a series called In His Steps, and uh, just in case that uh, you're not with us here for the beginning part of this series, uh, every time that we do a series, we or every time that, that we come into a place like this, we try and do a series to actually go deep into the Word rather than just do a topical teaching of certain things. We try our best to go deep, to saturate, to really engulf ourselves in a text, and we, have, we take weeks upon weeks to do this. So this is week three, and this is going to be an eight-week series. So you, a lot of this is, is going to make sense today, but it would even make more sense if you just keep coming week after week after week. That way we get uh, deep into this, and we really learn uh, what it means specifically to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He's our Savior, and we're literally going to be taking this all the way up to Easter, so we are going to be taking and, and following in his footsteps all the way to the cross, through the cross, through the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday. Well, before we jump into the Word, I, I want to kind of tell a little bit of a story. I was a, a, I was a baseball nut whenever I was a kid. Now I'm just a nut, but I was a baseball nut when I was a kid, and uh, one of the TV shows, or rather one of the movies that came out in the 80s, was a movie called The Natural. Who's ever heard of the movie The Natural? It, you don't have That works too. Um, most of us. I would say that if you're, if you're 30 and over, you've probably heard of it. If you're under 30, you're probably like The Natural. What does that have to do with? Well, I'm going to tell you. The Natural is a great storyline, and it was a movie uh, that Robert Redford starred in, and he starred as a, as a baseball player. And he kind of grew up uh, playing baseball, and he was a phenom, a high school phenom. And right out of high school, he was set to go to the pros. Well, he was wrongly accused of a crime, um, something that he didn't do, so he actually did some time in prison. But all through his, his baseball uh, in high school and in baseball, he had, this, he had this certain bat that would give him strength, and, and the bat itself had the words Wonder Boy engraved on it. Do you all remember that? Who's seen the movie? It had the bat called Wonder Boy. And as a matter of fact, this bat, all through the time he would play baseball, before and after prison, this bat would give him such strength that he, he – he, in some way, he thought that that bat had some significance to how well he could hit the ball. And if you've seen the movie, you know that he, he, you know, part of the movie, he hit the ball and knocked the cover right off the ball. I tried to do that all the time growing up in Little League, and I did not even do that at all. As a matter of fact, I didn't even dent the ball. I was terrible. But all through that movie, you could see just the tension set up, and it was a great storyline and all those types of things. Um, I would say this is not necessarily just a family movie. Just go watch it you know, with your whole family, uh, but view it first as parents. But there's something, I think, very redeeming about this story. Robert Redford, and in the movie, his name was Roy Hobbs, he drew such strength in this bat, in, in Wonder Boy, and in this bat. And he, all through high school, used this bat. He went to prison, and then he got an opportunity after he went out, or he got out of prison to play baseball again. So he, he, gets a, uh, he gets this opportunity, goes back to the pros, and he's playing for some, some no-name team, and the team's terrible, but he, in, in great dramatic fashion, turns the team around, right? As if any one player could do that in any sport, outside of tennis, because, hello, usually it's only one person playing the other one. 
But he goes through and he, 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 he turns the team around and they get all the way down to the championship game. And Roy Hobbs is really the, the, the hero of the story. But something happens to the thing that he holds, uh, something to, that he holds in great strength in. Something hats with, happens with his baseball bat. And I want to show you this video right now. I'm not going to show you the end of the movie. You've got to see that one for yourself. <laughs> That's where it's stopping. You know, there's a little storyline there for all of us. You see, Roy Hobbs, he, he had such strength and he had such faith, if you will, in that bat. But in that moment when he hit that foul ball and the bat failed him. You see, we have those things in our life to where we go through and we have all these things that we put such confidence in. And we, if you will, we put our faith in. And yet we know that there are some times in our life when those things fail us. And what do we do? You see, it was amazing, and, and I'm not going to tell you the story between or uh, about the bat that he grabs. There's a storyline there, too. It's incredible. But he, he was put in a situation where he has to trust in something unproven. Do you all get that? He has to trust not in the bat that, that gave him such strength because that bat failed him. And yet he has to trust in a new bat. You see, in our lives, many times what we'll do is we put our trust in, in lesser things. We put our trust in money, but then a 401k takes a nosedive. We'll put all our trust in this future plans of a job or this, this thing that we're just really banking on and this job's really going to make it for me, and then all of a sudden you have a layoff. Or maybe for you, you put all of your hope and trust in this one position at this one job, but then as we've seen all around Dublin over the last 15 or 20 years, the business just moves. And everybody there loses their job. See, we all have a choice. What do we do in that situation? Do we step out beyond the thing that we're, we are gaining strength from? Maybe the thing that we're falsely putting faith in. Do we step beyond that and maybe trust in something else, even if it's unproven to us? I think if we would just jump into this text, specifically at the end of this text, we're going to see that maybe the very thing that's happened to you, maybe the thing that, that you think has failed you the most has put you in a place to where it can actually have a significant value in your life. Maybe the thing that has brought you the, the, the greatest brokenness, the greatest hurt, is the very thing that God wants to redeem and bring back and buy back that brokenness from you to mend something in you that you couldn't do any other way. I believe that's true. Let's jump into the Word and find out how. Give you a little bit of the context here. This is a parable, so Jesus would tell stories. Uh, the, these are not meant to be taken literally. Uh, these uh, we're going to see here, but part of this parable, the, there are certain characters and they represent things. And the audience that he's speaking to is largely the religious leaders. He's at the temple. It's kind of a carryover from last week's talk where he's in the temple. You all remember that? And he did something that people just think are so outlandish. Um, when Jesus went into the temple and he flipped over the money changers' tables and he did all of that and flipped over their benches and got everybody's attention and everybody had an uproar. Well, he's in the temple again. And he is, he's speaking to this audience who would, who would gather 
this message very abrasively. They would, they would receive this and they knew that he was speaking about them and about their sin. This is what happened. Verse 9. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and he rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. Okay, stop right there. A man, that is, a, that is supposed to be personified by the Lord God. So a man, a man in this story is actually replying to God. So it says, God planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Back up just for a second. I want this to, to really make sense to us. So a man, that is a personification of, of the Lord God Almighty. Some farmers, that's the Israelites. That's who's being referenced here. And it says at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants. And a servant, that means the prophets. That means the Old Testament prophets. So you have God, he says, that there, there are some people that I've kind of put in charge, and now all of a sudden I've, I've, I've sent these prophets in to bring messages to these farmers. But the tenants beat him, and they send him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. That would be another prophet. And if you know the Old Testament, this is what happened over and over and over again. The, the people... Uh, they would not respond well, and a prophet, Old Testament prophet, would come in, and the people would, they would really, really go to war against this prophet because the, they didn't like the message that the prophets were bringing because the prophets were bringing really words of, of, of condemnation over their, over their conduct and their behavior, but then there would also be an element of grace, but they still didn't want to hear it. Verse 11, he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. So now there's the repetition here that there was a you know Old Testament prophet that was brought in, but they didn't respond well to that prophet, and the prophet would come in, and they didn't respond well to that prophet. And time and time and time again, we know this from other texts. These texts will be on uh, on the screen for you this morning. And first one comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter nine, verse twenty-six. It says they were disobedient and rebelled against or, and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you, and they committed terrible blasphemes. So this is a reference to this. There's another scripture. Uh, this will also be on the screen. It's Jeremiah 25 4. It says, And though the Lord has sent all of his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, they have not listened or paid attention, or paid any attention. So time after time, the Lord would send prophets, and the prophet would come to the people, and he would say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, but I want to show you there's a better way. What you're doing is wrong, but I want to show you a better way. But the Israelites did not want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it at all. They only wanted to hear what their itching ears wanted to hear. They only wanted to hear good things. This happens in our culture. There are people there, there are people who stand on stages just like mine on TV and they tell you everything good and everything great and they and their message is is just full of grace and everybody wants to hear it but that is what your itching ears want to hear but the reality is you have to hear the balance of grace and truth and the truth is there are some things in your life today church there are some things in your life that need to be corrected there are some things that you're doing wrong that you need to allow God to speak into. You have to. So 
We must not follow in the example of the Old Testament Israelites and this parable that Jesus is telling to the religious leaders. We, we can't follow suit with this. We have to open our, our minds and open our hearts to the very best that God has for us. Even if it's not emotionally satisfying, know that it will, it will be spiritually satisfying. Even though we don't know all the implications of the changes that he wants us to make, we don't have to know all, all the implications. We just have to know that he is trustworthy and he is faithful. And he's not just faithful with what he's asking you to do. He's also faithful with the process to take you where he wants to take you. That's important. He doesn't just send you off so you have to go it alone. He's faithful even when we are unfaithful. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, this is the man, this is the personification, this is God. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Who do you think that's a reference to? Jesus. That's right. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This, to me, is an amazing text. Because... Jesus is standing before the religious leaders, the very men who would be, really, who, the people who would cause him to be crucified in the first place. And he's standing over them, and he's telling them exactly what's going to happen before it happens. Have you ever been able to do that? You have to be God to have that to happen to you. This is incredible to me because Jesus stands there because he's not afraid of the consequences. He knows the consequences, but he's not afraid of the consequences. So he stands before the religious leaders, the people who, who had it, quote-unquote, all together before everyone else. And he boldly proclaimed this parable. Boldly. Even prophesying his own death. What then will the owner of the vineyard say or do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's heavy. That's heavy. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. Verse 18. This is what we really want to jump into this morning, verse 18 says this, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. The religious leaders were afraid of the people because there was something so compelling about Jesus' message that everybody, they would, they would look upon Jesus and they knew there was something significant about him. And as they were walking around in his steps in that day, they didn't understand all of the implications as to what he was saying, but they knew there was something special. And the religious leaders knew that there was something different in him that was not in their own hearts and lives and that the people would revolt against the religious leaders if they were to do something against Jesus. So their plan had to be worked out and developed more. Back to verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. 
You see, I've been really just entrenched in this, and God's really given me opportunity to share this, and in, even in our home life over the last several weeks. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. What does that mean? What that means to me is we have to have our wills broken at times so that we fully understand who Jesus is. We have to have broken, we have to have some relationships broken so we don't trust in people to do what only God can do. We have to have some job loss in our situation so we, and, and some brokenness in that area so we're not relying on, on a paycheck to provide eternally what only God can do. I heard of a, it's a I heard the story first, but then I read the book. Um, and the book is called Blind Courage, and it's about a guy who walked the Appalachian Trail um, all the way from Georgia to Maine. And he did so, like, that's not that big of a deal. It's like 2,200 miles, but a lot of people have done it. Uh, but he did it blind. So that makes it pretty significant, right? Um, could you imagine trying to get out to your car blind? Just think about it. So he walks the Appalachian Trail with the help of a seeing-eye dog. But it isn't that it, that it the most significant thing about his walk wasn't just the fact that he set out to do it. It's why he did it. He lived much of his life in spiritual darkness. He lived much of his life not just in spiritual darkness, also physical darkness and blindness. But, but the spiritual blindness for him is something he would try and satisfy it with relationships with women and with alcohol. And the longer that he got into his life, the more that he realized there was no, he wasn't reaping any satisfaction. There was nothing satisfying about what he was doing to try and fix his life. So he had to get to his most broken point, breaking his will, his will to drink from a bottle, to pacify all his needs. Break, break his will of trying to satisfy all of his needs with, with women and with all these things. For him to look upon the Lord to say, surely what you have for me is the very best for me. Because what I've been doing is not working. You see, he had to be broken so he could be mended. And then after God started to mend him, then he decided to go on his walk. As a matter of fact, he called it a grace walk. And during that, that whole walk, what he wanted to do was he wanted to just share the grace of Jesus because he had been changed, because he had a story. And those of us who, who are in Christ, they have a story, who they were before Jesus and who they are after Jesus. And they have to be two different people. Because if you're not two different people, you don't really have a story. Because when Jesus comes into a life, he changes you and he turns everything inside out. Upside down. Darkness to light. Bill Irwin, as he would go out and he was going on his grace walk and specifically with kids, and they would be just enamored. He would go into these cities. That's what you have to do to resupply um, on, on a hike like that. And he would hike into a city, into a grocery store, he and his dog. And, and they would see that he's blind and they would say, wow, how are you doing what you're doing? And he would sit back and he'd say, it's just by the grace of God. Well, well how were you able to do this? Uh, it's just by the grace of God. So he would go through and, and, and he would, they would ask certain things of him and he would say to him, said, hey, if I would send you a Bible, if I, if I send you a Bible, do you promise that you'd read it? And there were a bunch of people. As a matter of fact, he passed out over 500 Bibles while he was on his hike. 500 Bibles. 
See, he didn't do it just for the walk, but he knew that he was changed because he had to be broken in order to be mended. But he had to understand that he was broken before he could be mended. He had to understand that he was living in spiritual blindness before he could live in the spiritual light. See, many of us, I, I believe this, I'm convinced of this. We go, through, we go through life and we're broken and we don't acknowledge our brokenness. We, we go through life and we're, we're in spiritual darkness and we don't even realize we're in spiritual darkness. Brennan Manning had a quote, and, it, and it, I think it speaks into this very, very well. It says, Our false self stubbornly blinds each of us to the light and the truth of our own emptiness and hollerness. Look at that again. That our false self, part of us and part of our, our sin DNA that exists in every person, it doesn't matter if you're a preacher, teacher, deacon, elder, whatever, who you are, if you, just, if you are not even a, a, a Christian, we all suffer from this ailment called sin. But Christians have kind of figured some things out that God will actually step into that brokenness and He will mend us and He will, try, and he will make us whole. But we have to understand where we are. That we have this false self that speaks to us and that speaks lies to us. And Brennan Manning says that it stubbornly blinds each of us to the light and the truth of our own emptiness and our hollowness. So we can live in spiritual blindness and not even know it. You see, people who live in spiritual blindness try and do everything themselves. But I, but I can tell you the fruit of of this spiritual blindness. You try and do it all yourself. You try and do it all yourself. And after a while, you just become impatient. And you become so impatient because you're just you're waiting for something to happen, but you realize that you're powerless to change it yourself. So you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you grow impatient. And, and the more that you grow impatient and the more you sit in your mess and you realize that you can't fix your mess, like there's not like a street sweeper that's big enough to clean up your mess. It's just like your mess. And then after a while, you start getting discouraged. And then when you start feeling discouraged and you've been sitting in your mess for so long and you've tried to fix it yourself and you know that you can't, you've grown impatient and now you're discouraged. So now you realize there's a mess. You realize you can't do anything about the mess and then now you're starting to spiral down. Anyone ever been there before? And now you become discouraged. Now you shut everybody else off. That this, I'm telling you, as a pastor, as somebody who counsels, and just as a friend uh, to, of Christian people, I just see this over and over and over again. This is, this is so much what happens in the Christian life. That's why I want us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to understand fully, maybe to make sense of our situation. Because I believe only God can help us make sense of who we're supposed to be. And maybe who we are now. But we have to, we, many times we have to understand that we go through life and we're in spiritual blindness. And yet we grow impatient because we try and fix it ourselves. We grow discouraged because we know that we can't fix it ourselves. So now we just keep working it out and working it out and working it out and working it out. But then we get to the third level and that's just despair. That's when we just throw our hands up and say, you know what? I can't fix it. I can't fix it. I can't fix my marriage. I can't fix my finances. There's got to be a different way. There has to be something else here. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's something beyond my existence that I just can't see. And let me tell you this, church. That is the very place that you need to be to see change happen in your life. Maybe you've tried it all yourself. You've grown impatient. You, you, you've waited maybe 
you've waited on other things to try and satisfy your needs. And yet you've, you've gone through that and you've gone through the discouragement stage and you're just saying, oh, I don't understand why, why this isn't working, but you keep pushing and you keep pushing. And the more you realize that you don't have what it takes to make it through. And then you get, when you get to the point of despair, when you get to the point where you just throw your hands up and say, I can't do it myself. I'll tell you this, church, that is the very best place to be before God. Because at that moment... When you realize that you're in spiritual darkness is when he can turn on the light. See, he's not going to turn on the light to your life. He's not going to enlighten you spiritually to things unless you realize who he is and who you are. But there has to be a time in our life where we have to be broken ourselves. Where we have to realize, you know what? It's not my will be done, God. It's your will be done. I'm not supposed to be looking for all my satisfaction in relationships when all of my satisfaction is found in you. And unfortunately, with where we live, and not just culturally, I'm just saying in our country, we're incredibly blessed and financially wealthy. And we have, it has become something entrenched in every one of us to trust money than more than we trust God. In third world countries, they don't even have that problem because they don't have money. All they have is God. They trust Him for the sunshine. They trust Him for the rain. They trust Him for the crops. They trust Him that when, when they go to the well, that the well is going to be full or, or they're going to be able to dip water out of the well to be able to, to satisfy their needs for that day. But we have so much at our disposal. And unfortunately, many of us live in spiritual darkness. And the very thing we need is to be broken. Just like it says in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. For us, we have, to, we have to kneel before Jesus and be broken before Jesus. And it has to break apart every part of us so that he can mend us back together and we can just be this incredible mosaic of grace. That way we don't look like who we were before. We look like who he's making us to be. That way that the world sees us, people who are outside of the faith, they see us and they say, wow, there's something different about that person. And their life is, they're not perfect, but their life is being put back together. And, and the world People outside of the faith will look at that and say, man, I want that. I want that. And that's when we can be used of God. Have you been broken? Have you had a place in it? And I'm not, you know, I realize that we are physically, there are people even in this room and who would hear this message online. I know that there are people who... who they have a lot of concerns in their life, and this, this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense maybe right now. But, but please just allow this to maybe saturate, go beyond surface level, and sink down deep into your heart. The very God who made you is the very God who loves you, cares for you, and died for you. So I think that would mean that maybe he should have a little bit more say-so into our lives. We should allow maybe the, to remove the filter and just receive his grace and truth. But for us, we have to be broken. We have to be broken. The, the greatest times of spiritual growth in my life is when I, when I learned that I couldn't trust on other things. And this even happens in ministry. I've had seasons in ministry where I've, like, I've been trusting and I've trusted in the wrong things. And I've looked at numbers and I said, Lord, when are you going to fill the house up? When are you going to fill the house up? And what I was doing is I was trusting. I wasn't trusting God as much as I was trusting the, the, the people how wrong of me. 
There are times where, where if I have a little bit of money in the bank and I'll sit back and say, we're doing pretty good, babe. we got money in the bank. We're doing pretty good. But then, boom, something happens. That money's gone. And now I'm like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. And it's at that very moment that God just gives me that spiritual increase. But we have to go through the levels sometimes. As painful as they are, where we grow impatient, we, we realize we can't, we, we try and do it ourselves, but we realize it's, it's, you know, we just can't, we can't move that mountain ourselves. And yet we get discouraged. But when we get in despair, it's the place where we can be the most used of God. Not just used and changed and, and on our level, but moved and changed of God to change people, our coworkers, our family. Everyone who's around us. The amazing thing about a walk with Christ is this. If we bring Christ our brokenness, He gives us His righteousness. We we come to the table with nothing. Okay, church? We come to the table, we come to the Lord with nothing. You may be talented, you may be a carpenter, you may be a plumber, you may be a teacher, you may be a nurse, you may be whatever profession you are, you may be a preacher. It's nothing. It's nothing before God. And He takes our brokenness and acknowledging our brokenness and He says, you know what, I I can do better than that. Here's here's your brokenness, but I'm going to trump that and now I'm going to give you my righteousness. That's a great thing. Romans 5.1 says this. This verse is on the screen. This will be a great help to you. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, justified through faith, that means been found not guilty. It's like a legal term. We're viewed not guilty by the Lord because of faith, because of our faith in Him. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. What a, what a beautiful exchange. We come to Him with nothing, and He gives us everything. That's pretty cool, right? That's pretty cool. Uh, you, you can barter... Yeah, but you, you're, you're, you, you know, you can try trade something off with somebody else, but you're never going to get that sweet of a deal. We come to the table with nothing. He gives us everything. And by the way, with everything, it says this. We bring brokenness. He gives us righteousness. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, been found not guilty of our sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, which is the very thing that we need as human beings. That is, the, that is the deepest need that we have as human beings. Our deepest need is not a marriage. Our deepest need is, is not children. Our deepest need is not our bank account, our money, the size of our house, where we live, where we don't live, our dreams, our aspirations. The very deepest thing that we need as human beings is knowing that we are at peace with God. That's what we need. We come to the table with brokenness. He says, boom, I'm giving you my righteousness. Come to me by faith. Come to me by faith. A beautiful exchange. But it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have a promise in Romans 8.1. This also is on the screen. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Therefore, connect the dots. So, he says that we've been justified by his blood. We've been found not guilty. Now we're in a right standing with God. And he says, now, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit of life set them free from the law of sin and death. 
So now, the great exchange, we come to Him with brokenness. He gives us righteousness. And because of that, we're right in the middle. And the middle is called life where we don't stand condemned. We stand as free men and women of faith. That's a good time for an amen. That's good news. And, and we, we come to the table with nothing, just jacked up people. And He says, you know what? You come to me by faith. I bring my righteousness. I'm at peace with you. You're at peace with me. And now you can live the life that you're called to live. Now you start to understand maybe your brokenness, maybe the, the, maybe the job loss, maybe even a health concern, maybe it was just a, a failed relationship, was the very thing that God used to turn you around from your way of thinking into His way of thinking. But as I just, uh, I just have to say this, you know, some of us, uh, maybe even in this room, we're in spiritual blindness. It's not even a brokenness issue. It's a spiritual blindness issue. And you're still trying to do everything yourself. You see, spiritual blind people say this, oh, I know who Jesus is, but they haven't allowed him to be the Lord of their life. They, they know who he is. They just haven't allowed Him to be the Lord of their life. You see, spiritual blind people, they do everything for themselves. They do everything for themselves, and they cut off everyone else around them, and they try and, and one-up everybody around them. That's what spiritual blind people do. Spiritual blind people even pray, but they don't pray to be moved by God. They pray that God will move on their behalf. Oh, that's so sinful. That's spiritual blindness. That's spiritual blindness. Because that's our way a sinful way of trying to manipulate God. That's the core of that. Do you sit in spiritual blindness? Do you? I would say this, there, there's hope for people that are spiritually blind. Because through the blood of Jesus, and, and it tells us, those of us who are in Christ, we don't stand condemned. So if you go before Jesus and you, you just... You go before him and you confess yourself a sinner and say, you know what, I, I, I realize that, that my life is a wreck. I realize that I've been trying to do it all myself. I realize that, that everything that, that I have is because I thought that I deserved it. Everything that I have, I thought, you know, well, I earned it, therefore I deserved it, so I had a right to keep it. See, spiritually blind people do that, but what they need to do is go before the Lord and say, you know what, I'm sorry for that. Because I know that everything comes from you. You're God and I'm not. Spiritual blind people who want to see, who want to see, step out of that and say, you know what, that's, that's where I was, but I want to come before you, Lord, and I want to acknowledge you and say, I want to ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. You see, the Savior bit, that's, that's an important part because that means you go from death to eternal life. That's, that's an important bit. But also the Lord side of it is just as important because that means in between now and eternity that you still allow Him to, to have the keys to your life. You see, the way that you can go from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight is by allowing Jesus to have control of your life. That's it. There's nothing else that's going to work. There's some amazing things about righteousness. I want to encourage you with this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, you have these things. And I'm going to give you these uh, quickly, and then we're going to be in the home stretch. Um, righteousness 
Uh, Proverbs 13.3 says this, Righteousness guards the man of integrity. That's not your righteousness. That's not self-righteousness. That's not something you can earn and be like, all of a sudden I've got to this level in my spirituality and you know I, I, I can name most of the books of the Bible and I've got all this and I, I come to church three out of four weeks so I'm doing pretty well. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christ's righteousness given to us. That's, that's taking our brokenness, him giving his righteousness, and because of that exchange, he guards the man of integrity. So his righteousness, that right standing with God, it guards us. It also has even more of a long-lasting effect. Proverbs 14.34 says this, that righteousness exalts a nation. Not a country, not the U.S. of A., not the red, white, and blue, you know, stars and stripes. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a nation that talks about people, a movement of people. His righteousness, his righteousness exalts, it lifts up a nation. Meaning that, that you, Christian... You, Christian, you can have a profound impact to those around you of just saying, hey, where is the peace? By explaining to people the peace that you have found in God. And now because of that, you can lift up a people. What would happen in our day if Christians would just stand up for what they believe in? What would happen in our day, in our, in our community, if people would stop living in this, this pretense that I've got everything all together and pushing everybody else away and just saying, you know what, I was broken before God and now I'm in right standing with God because of His righteousness and now we, that He would be using that to lift up other people. Great promise there. Righteousness of the blameless, they make a straight way. That's what another proverb says. It makes a straight way. I love this because I'm sick of living my life like this, right? When God's best is here and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it my way and then I'm going to come back. and Oh, no, I'm on track. No, I'm going to do this. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if we just were promised this, this straight way of following right into the Lord's best for us? We have that. We have that. Righteousness of the upright delivers them, as Proverbs 11.6 says. And righteousness reaps a sure reward. It reaps a sure reward, is what Proverbs 11.18 says. And you know what that sure reward is, church? If you're a Christian, you know this. The sure reward of His righteousness is a right standing with God here on earth, but also a right standing with Him in heaven. That means when we, when we go and we leave the earth, the, the sure reward is, is His righteousness that, that He has already viewed us as being not guilty of the sins that we've committed because of the blood of Jesus. And what an amazing exchange that He would take our brokenness and give us His righteousness and all of it together would to be to move and to mold and to shape us into the men and women, the young men and women of faith that He wants us to be. Isn't it great to know that God's not done with us? Isn't it great to know that God didn't just do some amazing things in our culture and just say, you know what, y'all are too far from me, you're, you're on your own. Isn't it amazing to know that God says, you know what, I'm with you as individuals. That He's with us, that He loves us. Isn't it also great to know that that brokenness that's happened in our life can speak into something better? in the days to come. To me, that's a, that's a powerful thing. But the end of, of uh, Luke 20, verse 18, also says this. It says, and it's, it's talking about 
at the end of our life, if you have not received Jesus, it says that the, the very thing that, that we, we as Christians, rather, are broken over that stone, that stone being Jesus, we need to be broken before him. But it says, understand clearly, if you're a non-Christian, if you're seeking the faith, understand very, very clearly that very stone is what the word says will be the very thing that crushes you. Because we all have a time where, where grace will expire. When we die, if you die outside of the faith, grace has expired. And the deliverance into heaven is gone. It's a serious message, is it not? It's a serious message. Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I'm absolutely convinced that most people in America, most people in America, have accepted Jesus as as a historical figure. They've accepted Jesus, maybe most of them, as Savior, but yet they have not accepted Him as Lord. And you kind of have to have both. What is it about your life today? Maybe, maybe you've got areas where you say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. I, I'm, I'm, every day is a battle. It's a battle of my mind and my heart. But I'm trying to submit to his authority, his lordship, and saying, I want him to be the Lord and Savior. What is it about, about your life right now that you're struggling with? 